Let me ask you now if you would turn your attention to our scripture reading. It comes from Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18. If you're able, if you'd please stand. This passage can be found in your bulletins. You could also follow along in your own Bibles. And you probably recognize this is the passage we've been reading together uh, out loud the last seven weeks. So let me read the first verse and a half, and then I'll pause and I'll welcome you all to read with me this passage that we've been memorizing from Romans 3, beginning in verse 10b. This is the Word of God. What then... Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and would you join me in reading this? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer for the preaching of God's Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look at this passage that you would be at work in our hearts. Thank you, Lord God, that we've had the opportunity to memorize this text over the last seven weeks. And we ask, dear Father, that you would not only cause us to memorize it, but that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would understand the things that we have now committed to memory. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have now shown us our need for him in your scripture. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would be glorified by the work of your spirit among your people as we look this morning at your word. It is for your glory that we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at this passage, you've already seen this is the text that we have been memorizing these last seven weeks. And there's a, a very important reason that this is one of the passages that we've, we've chosen to memorize. Uh, for most people who have good commentaries on the book of Romans, uh, they would say that this passage, Romans 3, 9 through 18, is a summary of the first portion of the book of Romans. That, that these verses, verses 9 through 18, are the summative expression of everything that we've been reading from Romans 1, 18, all the way through this passage in Romans 3. It ends in verse 20. When we get to verse 21, we will see a clear, marked transition to a new section in the epistle to the Romans. And so... 
part of our memorizing this passage is so that if you ever wonder, I wonder what the first section of Romans is about, that you've now been given the tools and resources to say, I know of course what the beginning of Romans is about. It is the passage that I've memorized in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. And as you look at this passage, it is, uh, not only is it the summary, but you can imagine the Apostle Paul working through, beginning in Romans 1, and he, like a, a prosecutor, is providing an indictment against all humanity. And when he gets to chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, it's as if the prosecutor now makes his final argument and he rests his case, okay? And the summary or the hypothesis and the thesis of everything he said can be found in verse 9. In verse 9 he says, For we have already charged, and you can hear in that the prosecutorial language, okay? We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the hypothesis. That's the statement that summarizes everything that we've read thus far. And it explains what Paul now means as he summarizes this in verses 9 through 18. Verses 9 through 18 are Paul's pulling on at least six different Old Testament passages to pull together these texts from the Old Testament Scriptures to make one cohesive argument on why all people are under sin. And you can see the Apostle Paul, one of his primary audiences being the Jews that he's, he's speaking to. You could see him saying to those Jews, I, I know you rely heavily upon the Old Testament Scriptures, but I won't give you one, I'll do you one better. I'll give you six Old Testament Scriptures that prove my point that all humanity are under sin. This is the argument that he begins with in verse 9. Now, listen, last night as I was working through this passage, preparing to preach it, I... I um, through a little curveball, a little wrench into the works, okay? I'm working through the text last night, and I made the decision that I think it's better to work backwards through this passage, not forwards, okay? Now, that's really good, I think, for our understanding of the passage. By the time you get to the end of the text this morning, I hope you'll say, okay, that makes perfect sense. But what it does is it makes the outline in the bulletin a little bit wonky, okay? We're going to go point three, point two, point one, point four, Okay? And it's also a little evaluation to see who's listening, right? If I get halfway through the sermon and I look at you and you have a strange look on your face, I will realize you haven't heard what I've just said, okay? Point three, point two, point one, then point four. I think as we work our way through the passage, you'll see why, why we're doing it like this, okay? So let's begin with the third point. Speaking about the deeds of humanity, all are under sin. We see this expressed, first of all, in the deeds of all humanity. Look at verse 13, sorry, 15 through 18. Verses 15 through 18, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay? As I said, I want to begin with verses 15 through 18, and that's because it deals with the deeds, all right, or you could say the actions of all humanity. Now, if you're a visual learner, three pictures I think are going to help walk us through this passage. I'm going to draw a hand here, okay? A hand, because this is a depiction of the deeds of humanity, and deeds are often done with the hand, okay? 
and you can see a description of some of the deeds that the Apostle Paul provides that are pictures or portraits of the deeds of our guilt, of the deeds of our sin before the living God. He begins by saying their feet are swift to shed blood, which is a description of being quick to murder or quick to injure others. In verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. That is, that they pursue a pathway that leads to chaos. It leads to devastation. These are sinful deeds that humanity pursues. And the way of peace they have not known. That they pursue this pathway that leads to uh, uh, disunity, to division, that it has no concept of peace in the way that it is pursued. And he summarizes there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now the apostle here is quoting from Isaiah 59 and Psalm 36. He's lifting these ideas right out of those passages this morning to give us examples of deeds of destruction of deeds of sinfulness, okay, that we might see. Now, I I would say to you this morning, if you want to understand what the Apostle Paul is doing in the epistle to the Romans, one of the things that you have to do is, when you read examples like this from Paul, you have to press yourself to think of some examples of deeds of unrighteousness that are more applicable to you, okay? Because Paul gives examples, but it's not often that all of his examples fit our own experience, okay? So, for instance, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's probably not many among us who could be numbered with murderers. But the examples that Paul gives are categories of understanding deeds of unrighteousness. So I would encourage you this morning, as you think about the deeds and actions that are listed in 15 through 18, I would encourage you to go about making your own list of of deeds of unrighteousness that you say, maybe I am guilty of these things. And maybe there's things that we might think is more, more simple, like stealing or cheating, okay, deeds of unrighteousness. You can think of more specific examples like things that you've done, maybe even this morning. Uh, you could think of, uh, on the way to church, that, that bout of road rage that you had, okay? And I always find it interesting how many people have road rage on the way to church. It seems to be uh, that that would not be the case. This was even more a problem when we were in Philadelphia. I noticed uh, both of the churches we were members of in Philadelphia, the confession of sin always includes something about road rage, and that was because... Uh, you were more tempted towards road rage uh, when you had to drive an hour to church and people were cutting you off and you were tempted to cut them off. Payback, okay? So um, you could think of specific examples in your life. I was thinking this yesterday. I was blowing the leaves in my yard. And um, you might be tempted as you're blowing the leaves. It's a really long way off to blow them all the way to the road, but you could easily just kind of blow them into the neighbor's yard, right? And um, have you ever been blowing the leaves and you look across at your neighbor's house to see, are they home? You know, are they going to notice if I just blow some of the leaves into their yard? Okay, so these are, these are deeds of unrighteousness or the deception of the heart coming about in the actions, the things that we do with our hands and our feet. You, you should just make a list of these things for yourself. And if you're saying, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to make a list for myself, just ask the person to your left or right, okay? They, they inevitably will be able to give you the things that you struggle with, that manifest in deeds of unrighteousness and the things that you do that demonstrate your guilt before God, okay? Because we know that. We're we're human beings, 
And there are things, big things and little things that manifest in our life every day, the deeds of unrighteousness. And let me tell you why I begin here this morning and why I think the Apostle Paul ends here. Because I believe when we think about our guilt before God, this is where our minds tend to go. Okay? When we think about our guilt and condemnation before the living God, we tend first to think about the deeds of the hands and of the feet. Right? The things that we do, the outward expression of our own sin. And if you, if you don't think that's the case, I'll just give you a few examples of how that's definitely true within the church. Okay? Because within the church, so often, sin is addressed by behavior modification, isn't it? If we modify our behavior, then we deal with sin, okay? And if we can just change the things that we do with our hands, with our feet, and the outward demonstrations of our sin, then we provide a remedy for sin. So, for instance, you think about the ways that the church often helps people who are struggling with addictions, okay? Often our answer for addictions is, if you just do this, then you'll do less of this. And if you do less of this, then you'll be better off. Okay? That's behavior modification. Right? We change the way we act. And if we change the way we act, then we're better off. And if we can do that enough, then we're much better off. This is the way many Christian parents parent their children. Right? We're all guilty of that to some degree. Aren't we? We're always looking to modify our children's behavior. And if we can make them to obey us, right, then they are good. And, and there's a deception of righteousness in that as if, as if to modify the behavior is a remedy for the heart this is also the way that most of the world looks at the church if you were to survey many non-christians or worldly people and you would ask them well, what's happening in the church what are those people doing on sunday morning when they gather together most of them would tell you it's a bunch of people who have rigid standards so they can modify their behaviors Okay? They might not put that in those words, but that's their perception of the church. This is where our attention initially goes when we think about our, our guilt or unrighteousness before God. Why? Because these things are easily observable. I mean, you, can, you talk about sin and, and you want to identify sin and this is the low-hanging fruit. This is where our attention goes. This is where we say, I see this. I observe it in you. I observe it in me. I see it every day. Right? These things easily stand out to me. And, and what happens then, if you look at legalism and you look at what's happening in the Jews who Paul's writing to and addressing, what happens is if you're good at it, if you have self-control, if you surround yourself with the right people, you begin to think that you can remedy your own sin and you, you go down this list of the, of the things, that the deeds and the actions that you see, the sins that are obvious to you, and if you do well enough, you can cross these things off and you can say, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't have road rage on a Sunday morning. I don't blow my leaves into my neighbor's yard. Look at the things I've done. And we begin to deceive ourselves that the guilt of unrighteousness before God is remedied. That there's a solution. This is the posture of the Jews that Paul has been speaking to at the beginning of chapter 2 all the way into the beginning of chapter 3. And we ourselves are often equally guilty of the very same thing. I think that's why Paul gives some very obvious examples. These are atypical things. Both the people he's speaking to and us today would say, hey, we're not swift to shed blood. What does it even mean? 
Right? That's not a problem I deal with. I think he's quick to give atypical examples to lead us or to woo us to a place where we're going to say, that's not me, I don't do that. Okay, that's not me, before he's going to expose again the depths of sin in the heart. Okay, so these are the outward deeds or actions exposed in verses 15 through 18. And I will tell you, as, as these are the most easily observable places where we find our sin, what will be equally true is that this is uh, furthest away from the actual heart or the core of our guilt and sin. And so we work backwards through this passage. The next portion uh, uh, that we're working through then would be verses 13 through 14. And in 13 through 14, Paul gets a little bit closer to the heart of the issue when he begins to talk about our speech. Look at verses 13 through 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These are three different psalms that Paul lifts these verses out of to make his point. Psalm 5 is in verse 13. Psalm 140 in verse 14. And Psalm 10 there at the end of verse 14. Three psalms that Paul uses to make his point. And if you're, if you're thinking about this passage, as Paul pulls his, his points out of the psalms, it's interesting, this is the most vivid and illustrative part of the entire book of Romans. Okay, And, and that's for a very important point because Paul is a logical, straightforward guy. So when Paul speaks his own words, it's often to the point. And, and Paul speaks in very technical language, but when he quotes from the Psalms, we see illustration and, and, and vivid imagery, and that's because that is the nature of the Psalms. And so if you're someone who likes poetry and, and you like vivid imagery, you're going you're gonna to love when Paul pulls from the Psalms, but not so much when he gets to chapter 7 and 8 and he gets very technical, okay? But, but here it is. Now look at this description. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. That verse is written in the uh, participial voice, and I think it probably would be better translated like this, their throat is like opening a grave, okay? Their throat is like opening a grave, which if you, if you want to really picture that imagery, you could imagine a grave where a body has been buried, and after a few days or a few weeks, you opening the grave, you can imagine how disgusting and wretched and, and stinky the, that would be, okay? That's the picture that Paul is painting of the throat. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps, that's a poisonous snake. Some translations say of a viper. The venom of a viper is under their lips. That is a, a, a deadly venom, okay? So there's a, a deadliness in their lips, a, a thing that causes death and decay. And their mouth is, it literally says, swollen with curses and bitterness. The same way a a body part, an appendage would be swollen because of an infection, okay? Their, their mouth is swollen with curses and bitterness. You can see the picture that the apostle is painting concerning the mouth, concerning our speech. He, he's painting a picture of decay, a, a putrid picture of decay, 
a decrepitness of a barren wasteland that is just full of death and destruction, whether quickly or slowly. The picture is that the the mouth brings about death and decay. And devastation and this vivid image is, is meant to communicate to us the danger of the tongue. How much harm it does and how much destruction it brings with it. I would say if you're, if you're really wanting to understand Paul's uh, 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 epistle and his words here, you could begin to list for yourself the various ways that you have used your words in unrighteous ways against the living God. And you could think about jealousy and gossip and slander. And you could think about greed. Greed often manifests in the words of the mouth, okay? And I meant to draw a mouth here. I draw a quick mouth, okay? In the, in the words of, of, of speech. And if you haven't noticed it, the Apostle Paul is working through the parts of the body and he's moving towards, he's heating up, he's getting closer and closer to the real problem at the, at the core of the human being. If you didn't see this, let me point it out. Okay, we began in verses 15 through 18 with the hands and the feet, right? The outward actions of the man. And then we get to verse 14 and he speaks about the mouth, but we go backwards to the lips and then the tongue and then the throat. And if you're following the course of logic in Paul's mind, it backwards we're moving from the, the outward things to the inward, and the throat leads us down into the heart of the, of the man or the woman. It gets us closer to the source of our condemnation and guilt. Okay, but before we get there, let's just stop for a second and talk about speech. Why does Paul speak about our speech? Well, it's very interesting. I think speech provides this middle ground between our deeds and actions in our hearts, okay? Because our deeds and actions are outward, they're obvious, they're easy to identify. Speech is a little bit more elusive. It can be hidden, it can be twisted, it can be changed. It gets us closer to the condition of the heart. Okay, and so here we are in the middle ground. And yet this is not where our condemnation and guilt is found, but it's an indicator of things within our hearts. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson said about our speech When he was preaching on this passage here, he said, It rarely seems to strike us that it is precisely here, therefore, in our speech that sin is most likely to abound. Only when we have brought to such a recognition do we realize how dangerous and destructive our tongues have been. The unregenerate tongue roams the wilds, quick to defend itself, swift to attack others, anxious to subdue them, Always marked by evil. It mimics Satan in this respect, who having rebelled against the God of peace can never be settled. He goes to and fro throughout the earth like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The tongue that is under his lordship always shares the same tendency. It has an inbuilt need to guard its own territory to destroy rivals to itself, and to be the king of the beasts. That's a good description of the tongue. That's why the Apostle Paul highlights the tongue here and speaks about our speech. I have to say, I'm always uh, perpetually amazed, actually astonished, at how, as human beings, we're inclined to take people at their word. 
I, I just think that's interesting to me. It, it often comes out when I think about this, this period of time when we're going through the political campaign season, okay? We just went through it, but now this time from now till next November, it's political campaign season. And it's always interesting to me to see politicians who are making all these promises, and it amazes me how many people say, oh yeah, they'll do that. I think they'll do that. Take them at their word. Uh, what is there in the unregenerate heart to constrain a human being to truthfulness? Really, what is there? There's nothing. The Apostle Paul speaking about the sinfulness of the heart being demonstrated in the speech of the mouth. What is there to motivate those not constrained by the law of God to speak the truth? There's nothing. And I, I think this is why speech is given here, again, in this in-between place between deeds and where we're going, which is the heart. Okay, because again, deeds are easily observable, but words are not quite. In our words, we can say, no, I didn't say that. That's not exactly how I put it. Right? We can mumble under our breaths. We can say things in private. We can curse others. We can curse God. Right? And yet, if you want to know a person, listen to their speech long enough, right? Listen to the things that they say. Listen to how they speak about others. Listen to how they use their words. Listen to whether their words line up with their actions because the speech is the evidence of the things of the heart. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus said in Matthew 15. You remember his words in, in Matthew 15 when he was speaking about this very issue. His disciples said, what is it that defiles a, a person? And they were wondering about deeds and actions probably maybe a little bit about speech, but what is it that defiles a person? Is it when they, when they eat food that's sacrificed to idols? Is it when they do certain things? And this is what Jesus said to them. Are you also still without understanding? Have you not understood yet? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then it's expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. You see, Jesus was saying what Paul is now expounding upon. Okay? A question of defilement is the same question as where is our guilt and condemnation? Where can it be found? And though we can see the manifestation of sin in the deeds, in our actions, and though it can be heard in our words, in our speech, and we must be careful with our speech, Jesus leads his disciples to an even more basic understanding of defilement, guilt, and condemnation. And that's what we can find in verses 10 through 12 in our passage this morning. Okay, this is verses 10 through 12. It's where... Paul begins in his argument, and I would say this is an explanation of everything that's going on in the heart. So if you're a picture person, you could draw yourself a heart here and look at verses 10 through 12. These passages, uh, this passage is quoted from Psalm 14 and Ecclesiastes 7. The Apostle Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you look at that 
that summary of the problem of guilt and condemnation. You look at it, you see what Paul's saying, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. If you want to understand Paul's use of the word righteous in Romans, you can substitute the word right, okay? They're the same word in Paul's mind, right? No one is right, not even one. And what he means is he's speaking of the relationship between the creature and the creator, okay? No one is right with their creator. No one functions as God has made them to function. No one is right according to design. No, not one. No one understands. No one comprehends. No one understands in their mind who God is and and why he's made them in the way that he's made them. No one understands truth and truthfulness. No one clearly perceives reality. No one seeks for God, which means no one pursues Him. No one wants Him. No one desires Him. No one wants the things of God in their unregenerate state. No one, not one. All have turned aside, which literally means all have deviated from the path. Okay? All have deviated from the path. Again, according to the design, creator-creature distinctions. Okay? He has made us to be in such a way, and we have deviated from the course All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless, of no value, of no meaning, of no substance. Humanity has no worth according to the way that God has created them to be. No one does good. No, not even one. You see, in verses 10 through 12, Paul is moving towards the inner man and he begins to address not the things that can be seen on the outside, not the things that pour forth in our speech, but he begins to address the things that cannot be seen with the naked eye, the things that are internal to man, the inner part of our being, in our hearts, and our minds, and our souls. And he says, here, here is where the problem is. Here is where your guilt before God can be found. Here is where your eternal problem exists that must be reconciled in the hearts, minds, and souls of humanity. Paul's most fundamental argument is that sin is universal, totally a part of every person everywhere who ever existed, not because we do sinful things, not because we say sinful words, though we do and we do say, but because we have sinful broken, deceitful hearts. And you might be able to modify your behavior and you might be able to change your speech, but you cannot change your heart. It's not simply that you say or do the wrong things sometimes or all the time. It's that at the core of your being, you are not right. And you are not good. And you do not understand And you have no comprehension. And you have no ability to comprehend or to understand. And you have no desire for God or the things of God. And you have no clarity when it comes to truthfulness. You are not right. In your inner being, according to the way that God has made you. I think in this way we we often give too much credit to the unregenerate heart. We give too much credit to ourselves before we found God. We give too much credit to those who, who do not know God. We tend to think that we're not dead in our sins and trespasses. We tend to think that we're partially disabled, right? That we're not somewhat inclined to God, but we have an inclination towards Him, that we have some sort of conception of who He is, that we desire some of the things that are right, that there's something within us 
that, that maybe moves us towards God, that we have some sense of goodness in us, some sense of rightness and righteousness, but it's not what the apostle says. Listen to how Thomas Aquinas explained this phenomenon. He said, we see people all around us who are feverishly seeking for purpose in their lives, pursuing happiness and looking for relief from guilt to silence the pangs of their conscience. We see people searching for the things that we know can only be found in Christ, but we make the gratuitous assumption. That's what it is. It's a a gratuitous assumption. We make the gratuitous assumption that because they are seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That's the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we do not want Him. We want peace, but we do not want the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. That was Thomas Aquinas' understanding of the human heart. And when you look around you and you you say, people are generally inclined to God, aren't they? People are generally right, aren't they? See what he's saying. It's the pangs of conscience. They want the benefits of God. Of course they do. But they want nothing of God. We wanted nothing of God. Our hearts were not inclined towards Him. Our hearts were dead. Here's a question, maybe help you to think of it. How how clearly was Abraham looking for God in the land of Ur? How desperately was Saul searching for Jesus on the road to Damascus? How much did the disciples want Jesus when he came and he called them? The answer is zero. None. Abraham wasn't looking for God. Paul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. The disciples weren't searching for Christ. None. Zero. And you see, the reality is some people say, well, that was Abraham. That was Paul. That was the disciples. But that's not the way that God works. It's, it's absolutely the way that God works. Each man is a, is a picture of the desperate need of a broken humanity who has no inclination towards God, lest God come and seek him out and find him. And change his heart. And give him desires that he did not have. You know how I know that? Paul's argument here. He's making it crystal clear. Emphatic to us. By using all of these all words. And none words. Did you see them? All and none. All none. All none. All none. In the Greek it's pontes and uk. There's no greater condensation of these words. No greater frequency of these words. Than right here in Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 18. You heard it again and again. All. None. All. None. All are unrighteous. All have fallen away. None desire God. No, not one. All, none, all, none. And it's not Paul simply being emphatic to be emphatic for emphatic's sake. Okay? And it's not that it is a a slip of the tongue. Not that we're reading into the passage. Paul is making the argument that you might know all humanity are unrighteous. None desire God. No one understands. As Dr. Fink used to say, if any of you had Dr. Fink, or Bible 3.15, all means all, that's all all means. Okay? And I'd add, none means none, that's all none means. All and none, all and none. 
There is no ambiguity in the words of Paul. He is making the argument that all human beings are guilty before the living God, not because of what they do, though they're guilty because of that, and not because of what they say, simply because of what they say, though they're guilty because of that, but because their hearts are full of sin and iniquity. That there is no other possibility in the heart of a man who is born into this world, but that he would be born into sin and corrupt in his innermost being. And so therefore, the prosecutorial statement of verse 9 must be true. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You might be wondering, what, what does it mean that all are under sin? What does the Apostle Paul mean? Because under is a physical location word, and we have something and something else is under it. There's an, a question, what does it mean to be under sin? And some people have said, well, be, it means that sin is your identity, and that's maybe partially true. And, and others have said, well, it means that you're, you're under the wrath of sin, the judgment of sin. And, and yes, we've seen that in Romans, but as we continue reading, you will find that what the Apostle Paul means when he says under sin is that first and foremost above anything else that to be under sin means that we are under the power of sin. That we are under the bondage of sin. That we are children of sin. That we are products of sin. That we are defined by our sin. That we are servants of sin. That we are, he will go on to say most emphatically, we are slaves to sin. That's the word he's going to use Romans 5, 6, and 7, okay? And if there's any ambiguity here, the ambiguity will be gone when he uses the slavery word. We are slaves to sin. That we have no freedom, that we have no choice, that there is a corruption of the innermost man that is at the core of our being. That's what it means that we are under sin. So let me ask you a question this morning, just as you kind of wrap up this passage, okay? To be under sin and the universal condemnation, guilt of sin as described in the first three chapters of Romans, it's a problem of the heart. So the question really is, who among you knows how to fix the heart? Do you know how to fix a heart? Really, do you know how to fix a heart? You see, because I can give you ideas all day long about how to have better deeds and actions and how to exercise self-control and what it means to do less of one thing and more of another and how to live according to righteous deeds. And we can have good relationships that help us to have godly speech and to say good things that are glorifying to God. And we could talk about those things all day long. And we have programs and systems and there's books you can read about how to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And we have all of these tools in the world and we can go and find them and there's some in the church and there's many out there and we have all of these things that will help us with our deeds and our actions and our speech but who among you knows how to remedy the heart? Who can give the understanding that the Apostle Paul describes us lacking in verse 10? Who can give that understanding? Who can give eyes to see and ears to hear? Who can deal with the, de 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 the corruption and the decay? Who can take a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh? Who can awaken a spiritual understanding? Who can make us to see the things that we're not capable of seeing? 
Who can revive a dead soul? Who can give new life? I mean, can any of you? See where Paul's going? If, if the guilt of sin is found in the inner man, the, the solution has to be otherworldly. Right? There's, there are no solutions here. There's no type of behavior modification that we can conceive of that will solve the problems that Paul has now put before us and has prosecuted all humanity and provided the problems that are true of all humanity. There's nothing in this world that can solve those problems. And for any who have been listening to Paul through chapters 1, 2, and 3, they're left with the same question. Who can change the heart? Only God can. We know that. And where this epistle is going is to lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the solution for the inward brokenness of the human heart. Let me encourage you with this, okay? When we talk about sin, it's easy to talk about the outward. Maybe it's a little bit harder, but still fairly easy to talk about our speech. But when we talk about sin, we we must talk about the guilt of sin, the condemnation for sin, the root of sin, which resides in the heart of man, in the soul of man, in the mind of man. That no matter how much you try, cannot be remedied with the things of this world. It must be remedied by a Savior, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came to free us from the bondage of sin. Right? For people who were under sin, slaves to sin, servants to sin, had no free will of their own, but were only children of sin. For people like that, Christ came, that by the power of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he might free us from that bondage. That's the good news. That's where we're going in this epistle. And that, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and the majesty of the Father, that that we might see he is our only hope. This is where Paul's going. We'll see it next week and we'll see it in the week following. Ultimately, this is the the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these first three chapters of Romans. I thank you, Lord God, that you have given through the mouth of Paul this most beautiful exposition of the sinfulness of the human heart. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to see beyond the easy things. Help us to to contemplate, to think about, to pray about, to speak about. Not simply the, the deeds that we do outwardly and the ways that we offend you in our habits and actions, but help us, Lord God, to meditate upon, to pray about, to think about, to speak about, to confess to you the inward thoughts of the heart. The corruption of our innermost being. The way that we are not inclined towards you in our natural self. The way even as your spirit works, we wrestle with the flesh. The way that sin still remains, even as we experience victory over it. Help us to confess that to you, Lord God. Help us to be clear of our desperate need for you. Remind us every day that we cannot solve our sin. Help us to know, Lord God, that we need your saving power every day, every minute. 
and that your spirit who works within us might have his way. Help us, Lord God, and humble us that you would receive the glory through an honest confession of sin and a faithful dependence upon Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In your name we ask all of this. Amen.